you want to uh, keep your outlines or your handouts kind of open, you'll see the passage there and I'll refer to that. There's also some notes on the right-hand side. And if you do happen to have a pen with you, I'm going to give you some Bible references as we go along. And it might be worth writing those down so that you can follow that up uh, later. Um, But how about we pray together before we look at God's word so that uh, God can be speaking to us and we hear him clearly, uh, remembering from James 1 that we want to be putting it into practice and not just kind of intellectually filling our brains. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, please give us uh, understanding now as we look at your word. Help us to be clear on what it's saying, but not just for the sake of knowledge, uh, rather for the sake of transformation. We pray that you'll strengthen our faith as we look at this together now. Amen. Well, a number of uh, years ago, my uh, daughter and son-in-law changed churches uh, in Sydney, and they went across to a church where uh, the minister was somebody I'd known for a number of years. And just after they arrived at the church, I I got a phone call from him, um, and he wanted to talk about um, my son-in-law. And I thought, well, this is really good. Um, You're following up to uh, get to know the people who are joining your church. And uh, I thought he might be asking, you know, are they... Uh, good people to involve in leading a, uh, the equivalent of a salt group at our church? Um, are there particular ways that you think uh, we could encourage them? But no, he'd heard that my son-in-law was a cameraman and uh, he had just had his cameraman pull out of a trip to Europe to film a whole heap of different locations because it was the celebration of 500 years since the Reformation. And um, he wanted to know how good my son-in-law was as a cameraman. So of course, with the prospect of a free trip to Europe, I said, he's obviously the best there is. Uh, You'd be mad not to take him. Uh, And um, unfortunately, my daughter didn't get to go as well. Uh, But uh, 500 years since the Reformation was an important landmark. And I want to say just a little bit about kind of church history here because I think it has a bearing on some of the issues that no doubt we feel when we read uh, this passage in James. Uh, The Reformation was brought about by a bloke uh, called Martin Luther, and uh, he famously nailed 95 theses uh, to the door of a church in Wittenberg. And the theses weren't kind of like a doctoral thesis. He hadn't written 95 PhDs. They they were statements of truth, biblical truth. And this marked the beginning of a lot of reflection and challenge to what had taken place within the church across Europe in particular. Because what seems to have happened over the Middle Ages uh, in the church by and large is that they had lost track in so many different areas. And one of them was that they'd come to believe that there were things that you could do that would, to put it crassly, effectively buy your way to heaven. And you could go into um, cathedrals and churches and you could pay money to purchase something called an indulgence. And this indulgence would contribute to your standing before God. And there was a lot of corruption associated with this. There was a lot of misunderstanding of the Bible and what being a Christian was all about. And uh, this monk by the name of Martin Luther, he he was a monk in the church, 
was riddled with guilt because he knew that no matter what he did, he could never be good enough for God. And it was in reading through various books of the Bible, notably Psalms, Romans, Galatians, that he came to realise that he had misunderstood the gospel of Jesus, that being a Christian was not what you do for God, but what God has already done for you. Now, it wasn't only Martin Luther at the time of the Reformation. There were a whole heap of what are now kind of famous church uh, figures through the, the years. In fact, some denominations are named after some of them, uh, like the Wesleyans, uh, which is a little bit later, the Lutherans, of course, after Martin Luther. Uh, you've got people like Calvin and Zwingli and John Knox and so on. But there were five main beliefs that rose to the fore during the Reformation. And they get described as the five solas, um, S-O-L-A. Uh, in Latin, of course, uh, sola means only or the only one. And uh, the five solas that became prominent during the Reformation were sola scriptura, or only scripture, solus Christus, only Christ, sola fide, uh, only faith, sola gratia, only grace, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. Now, these things are never put together in a document during the Reformation, but many have suggested that you can sum up the key biblical truths that were rediscovered during that time in the five solas. And I, I want to just point out um, some verses that emphasise these five solas. The first sola scriptura, I mean, there's lots of places we could go to, but if you want to put down a reference, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Let me read you these verses. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, All scripture is God-breathed. It's literally breathed out of God. Theonustos, God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, in the original, it's literally may be complete, comma, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, the scriptures are breathed out by God. Yes, there's human beings who've written the scriptures, but the ultimate author is the Holy Spirit. And it makes people thoroughly equipped for every good work that God calls us to do. So that is, scripture alone is the foundation of the Christian faith. Um, not church tradition, not what some person in authority in the church might have to say, not human arguments or reason, but scripture alone because it's God's spoken word. Then secondly, solus Christus. Well, there's lots of places we could go to, but Romans 3, I think, is a good place because in Romans chapter 3, we're reminded that by human effort, none of us measure up to God's standards. And so in Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, you get this terrible kind of verdict on humanity. 
which says, Romans 3.10, there's no one righteous, not even one. And now that's a, a bold statement on its own, but the whole argument is that no matter how good somebody is, he's always going to fall short somewhere. And we know this to be true because we've only got to ask whether we live up to our own conscience and each of us know that we don't do that perfectly. So if we can't even live up to our own conscience perfectly, then surely we don't live up to the standard of God. Now, the crunch comes with this. If we are to be righteous, if we're to be right with God, then why would God accept a lesser standard as righteous? And says there that no one is righteous, that is in God's stands, not even one. And that would be a massive problem, but for the fact that God now declares a righteousness from himself that the Bible testifies to. And if you pick it up with me in verse 22, he says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. On our own, we don't measure up. But by putting your trust in Jesus, God declares people to be righteous. Therefore, it's solus Christus. It's only through Christ that we can be righteous. And it's only through Christ in the sense of putting your faith in Christ, your trust in Christ. Um, and so it's sola fide as well. I'll give you an example of this. Um, first of all, from Philippians chapter 3. Paul, the uh, apostle used to think that he was righteous before God because of what he did. And then he discovered um, that he'd got it all completely wrong and that his best deeds were like filthy dung before God. Um, and, and he has this to say in Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> he, he's speaking of his good deeds. He says, I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So you can either have a, a self-righteousness, your own verdict on yourself, which counts for nothing, or you can have a God-given righteousness based on you trusting that Christ is righteous in your place. So sola fide. Um, and there's other passages in Romans and Galatians that talk about this as well. And um, not only sola fide, but um, grace alone. If you come back to Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 to 10, um, these are verses that some of you will have committed to memory. If you haven't, I encourage you to. They're, they're wonderful verses. So in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is, um, uh, well, when I was taught about grace, I was taught an acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense spells out grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. In other words, God gives us generously what we don't deserve. And he does so because of Christ. And so it says there in Ephesians 2 verse 8, for it is by grace, God's generosity, that you have been saved through faith. You've got to take hold of that. You've got to put your trust in that. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works 
so that no one can boast. For we're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And these verses are helpful because they remind us that it's God's grace that leads to our salvation, that we've got to put our trust in Jesus, our faith, in order to be saved. The good works don't save us, but we're saved in order to do good works that God's prepared in advance for us to do. And then lastly, soli deo gloria. All of this is to the glory of God. And seeing I'm in Ephesians, I'll just illustrate from Ephesians 1, um, verse 6, talking about God's work in salvation. He says, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Or down in verse 12, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Or down in verse 14, um, he's given us the promised Holy Spirit who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Everything God does generously for us is ultimately to the praise of his own glory. So that's, if you like, a, a little quick introduction to some of the big themes of the Reformation. And what they did was they pointed us away from self-righteousness to righteousness that can only come as a gift of God to be received by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. That was the key. Now, back to James. And uh, Martin Luther seemed to have a problem with James. Um, He on one occasion, described James as an epistle of straw. Um, He didn't think that it stacked up very well against the writings of the Apostle Paul. And I used to think that uh, Martin Luther had actually not accepted James as part of Scripture. Um, He had, and he preached on James. And I think in calling it an epistle of straw it's helpful to recognise that he had the background in mind of people who wanted to use James to say, no, you're not justified by faith in Christ alone. You're justified by your works. And your works are things like going along to church, um, performing the right rituals at church, buying the indulgences at the church and various things that were like this. Now, I hope to be able to demonstrate as we look at this more closely that there is no contradiction between one part of Scripture and another part of Scripture. That the problem that he had and that some people still have today when they look at this uh, letter of James was not that James thought one thing and the Apostle Paul thought another thing. Because after all, sola scriptura, James is writing scripture and this is God speaking. Paul is writing scripture and this is God speaking. And God's not going to be contradicting himself. So we need to work out how they fit together. The two things that I've got in mind where it seems to be a contradiction 
Uh, verse 24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Compare that with what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3 and verse 28. I'll just pull this up. Romans, I should have put a little bookmark in there. Romans 3.28. For we maintain that a person is justified or declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. What was James saying? Verse 24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, I'm conscious of the fact that I might have just created a dilemma that you didn't even think existed. And if that's the case, um, hopefully it'll be plain sailing as we look at it together. But uh, if it is something that has puzzled you, how can you be saying you're saved not only by faith but plus deeds and nothing but faith, how they fit together? Well, let's have a, a look then. And the key thing, I think, is to look at the perspective in the context. Um, one of the dangers of taking any verse alone and just kind of putting it out there um, is that you can make it say something that it doesn't really say. And uh, even politicians uh, will say, but you took me out of context. And you want to go back and, and, and look at it and see whether that's in fact what they did say and then you discover they did and that wasn't an excuse anyway. Um, but let's have a look then at these verses in context. So picking it up with me in the passage at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, we need to keep in mind the context of James. James has an argument that's underway. It's, it's one letter. And uh, we, we shouldn't just grab these verses on their own. We should see how his argument has been developing. And if you remember back to last week, one of the things that he was very keen to say is that when you listen or look at the word of God, you need to be changing in response. You need to be putting it into practice. And then he goes on to give an example of that. And the example in particular in James uh, chapter 1 and verse 27 is to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Look at what he says here. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? So you, you claim to be Christian. If you're claiming to be somebody who puts God first, if you're putting your trust in Jesus, and you see an opportunity to provide need, and you ignore that opportunity, just kind of saying something that's, you know, a platitude, then are you really putting your faith into action? 
Are you living as a Christian should live? Are you letting the word of God transform you? I think this is the gist of what he's saying. Um, because God is in the business of changing people, if we see a need and do nothing to meet that need, it's calling into question whether we've been changed. And if we haven't been changed, then that's calling into question whether our faith is real. I don't think it's terribly more complicated than that. Um, I'll give you an illustration of this. I remember when I was um, younger, living in Canberra, there was this news account of a small child that was found in a cardboard box at the rubbish tip. And the child was alive. Now, it's a horrible thing, isn't it? I mean, what could possibly have, have been so bad that someone was led to put their little child or someone else's little child into a box and take the box to the rubbish tip? And you can think of all the what-ifs, the things that could have gone wrong. What if rubbish had been dumped on top of that? What if a truck had gone in that place? What if nobody had found that, that child? I mean, horrific. But here's the scenario, I think, that James is saying. If you are wandering through and, and you open the cardboard box and you see that a baby's in there, to simply think, oh, that's tragic. That is just one of the worst things I've ever seen. And then close up the lid and go about your business. It's horrific, isn't it? For people to see their brother or sister without clothes and daily food. These, these are basic human needs. And if one of them says, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? It's not faith activated in love. It's just words. It has no benefit it's a pretense. It's hollow. It's meaningless. And I think that makes sense of the context here. Look carefully. What good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith? They don't ultimately have real faith. They're making a claim to faith, but it doesn't translate into the way that they live. And then it says, can such faith save them? This type of faith doesn't save because... This type of faith just shows that you haven't been changed by God. How could you possibly ignore the needs of your brother or sister? There they are without clothes and without daily food. I mean, it's not a, not a massive thing that's being asked, is it? It's not saying if, if you see that there is a, a problem with, with, with poverty and, and famine in Ethiopia and you don't find billions of dollars to solve the problem, which it won't, then it can't be real. No, it's simple, brother or sister, food and clothing. Do something about it. And of course, the implication is, if your faith is real, then you will. I'll give you another illustration of this. Um, you might have heard of a, a man called Charles Blondin. Um, some of you, no, no, none of you are old enough to have met him. Um, he was famous for walking across a tightrope um, across Niagara Falls. 
He did it over 300 times. And um, he did it blindfolded. That's pretty impressive. Um, he did it in a sack. Uh, he, he did it with a wheelbarrow. He did it on stilts. He did it riding a, a bicycle. And on one occasion, he stopped in the middle and he pulled out a, a little camp stove and a fry pan and he cooked an omelette uh, in the middle of the tightrope. Uh, on one particular occasion, there were crowds on both sides of Niagara Falls and he was there with a wheelbarrow and the account says that there was 300 pounds of cement in the wheelbarrow and he pushed that across and he pushed that back and then he said do you think I could carry you and he's talking to the people across the tightrope safely in the wheelbarrow and people said yes and then he said well Come on, get in. And nobody did. Actually, that's kind of true, but it, it's a little more complicated than this because you might have heard of um, Charles Blondin, but I wonder if you've heard of, of Harry Colcord. Because he didn't get in a wheelbarrow, he climbed on his back. And Charles Blondin piggybacked him across Niagara Falls and back and it was pretty hard going and on six occasions he had to put him down so he could rest and get his energy back to keep on going. I think that Harry Colcord is an example of faith in action whereas everybody else said that I have the faith that you can do it but wouldn't get in is an example of faith without deeds being dead. So you can say it, but it's an entirely different thing to put your <clears throat> life in the hands of the one that you say you're trusting with your life. Well, here's a picture of demonstrated faith and, and the example here, I think, again, it, it's not... If you've got real faith, then you'll step out on a tightrope or let someone carry you across. It's if you've got real faith in Jesus, then you'll care for the poor and needy. That's just the way it is. And then he takes the time to argue it biblically. And he gives us two biblical examples. Um, verse 20. You can see he's taken quite a while on this same issue. You foolish person, he says, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together <clears throat> and that his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So Abraham, it's a famous quote there in verse uh, 23, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. To put that quote back into context, it's in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. And it's the response that Abraham makes to God's promise 
that through him, he's going to have a son. And, and through that son, he's going to be the father of a, a great nation and ultimately bless the world. Now, this comes about at a time when Abraham is seriously elderly. And so is his wife. And she hasn't had children up to this point of time. Um, 90 plus years for his wife. Now, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. All he said was he believed. But notice what the scripture here says. Verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says... Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. See, it's not just that he said the right thing, Genesis 15. It's what happened a bit later in Genesis 22. Because in Genesis 22, God called Abraham to take his son and take his son up to this particular place and offer him as a sacrifice. Now... That's pretty heavy, right? So here is God saying, your son, Isaac, uh, well, he's, he's not got a name at that stage, but your son, uh, I'm promising that you'll have a son. Abraham believes God. But then God wants him to take Isaac and sacrifice him. If you don't think that's heavy, um, maybe you've never been asked by your child, if God asked you to do that with me, would you do it? My youngest asked me that when he was about 15. I said, mate, I, I, uh, I just hope he never asked me to do that. But if he did, I hope that he'd enable me to trust him. And I still remember his reply. Good answer, Dad. <laughs> um, you see, God never intended Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Um, He'd always provided an animal. It just Abraham didn't know about that yet. But he showed that he trusted God by taking the son of God's promise and being prepared to give him up. That's really putting your money where your mouth is. And <clears throat> that, we are told, is the fulfilment of him believing God. And it being credited to him as righteousness. Well, there's another example um, as well, a little bit different this time. Abraham being the father of the Jewish nation and, and the one that um, people look back to. This, this woman's not even a Jew. Uh, verse 25, in the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Um, if you're not familiar with that account, you can read about it uh, in the scriptures. And um, what, what happens is they, the Israelites who are in the wilderness, they're, they're poised to enter into uh, the, the promised land. They send spies to suss out uh, the land and, and they go to Jericho. And Rahab, the, the prostitute there... Uh, gives them safe passage and does things that lead to them being able to enter into and to take over Jericho. Now, when you think about what Rahab is doing, it's treason. 
That's what she's doing. She's committing treason. That was punishable by death. But she trusts God, at cost to herself, puts it into practice. So you've got two heavy-duty illustrations. First is trusting in God and being willing to sacrifice your son. Even though God never intended for that to happen, he had to trust God with that. Here's a little aside. God sacrificed his own son for you and for me. That's what Easter's about. But Abraham puts his faith in God. He's considered righteous. Rahab, at the threat to her life, puts her trust in God and does the right thing by God's people. So with these two examples of people who are doing dangerous things at the threat to life, you people, can't you help out those who don't have some food and whose clothes are threadbare? See, it's an argument of overkill, isn't it? But he's just saying, if we listen to the word of God and we go away having done nothing, then we've got to ask the question, is our faith real? Well, friends, the purpose of this is not introspection, although it's not a bad question to ask whether our faith is real. The purpose of this is not to explore a bit of church history and resolve some academic debates between Martin Luther and the church of the time. The purpose of this is real change. And last week we explored some practical ways that we can provide loving support for those in need. And I, I want to finish um, by reading you just um, a little extract from a book uh, called Together Through the Storm, A Practical Guide to Christian Care. And um, I've got three copies of this that you can buy actually on the table. So if, when I've read this, um, this edition's the second edition, only minor changes. I think these are $20 each. There's one first edition one there. You can have that for 10 um, or if you are struggling for food and clothing, I'll give it to you. That was sort of a joke, <laughs> but not really. If you can't afford it, I'll give it to you. Um, okay. Here in this chapter, she's talking about many opportunities to show love. People are going through difficult times. Then they find it encouraging when others are thoughtfully and sensitively reaching out to them with Christian love and prayer and practical support. This is particularly true when people are facing the following kinds of circumstances. Crisis situations, times of great stress, such as sickness or unemployment, bereavement, injury, broken relationships, chronic illness, disability, ongoing challenges with no immediate solutions, loss related to ageing, including becoming housebound, people's impending death or the death of a loved one, um, mental ill health, <clears throat> spiritual doubts or other issues of faith, hospital admission or moving into a nursing home. Um, by the way, we've got Bruce here and Bruce is the chaplain at the base hospital 
And if you get admitted into hospital, he'd love to come and pray with you. So it's good that you know Bruce is there. Or if you have friends that are going in and you'd love someone to connect with them, get in touch with Bruce. Moving house or country, natural disasters, fleeing war, seeking refuge, caring for somebody full-time, significant celebrations and life events, such as a 90th birthday or a new baby's arrival. Um, and there are different examples there of opportunities to show love. Um, I think they're only limited by our imagination. And then here are, on the next page, some important opportunities to show love. And I'll just give you some of the examples. Listening attentively with empathy. Comforting and providing a caring presence. Praying with and for someone. Reading the Bible together. Helping with crisis support. Responding to emergencies. Encouraging and building one another up by speaking the truth to each other. Understanding that at times that may necessitate a difficult conversation. Helping in practical ways such as preparing meals babysitting, grocery shopping or providing transport, sending flowers or giving a thoughtful gift, remembering and maintaining contact by telephone, texting, emails or sending cards, persevering and offering ongoing care and support in difficult situations that continue for a long time, providing information or assistance to get in touch with a professional care provider, getting to church early or staying behind late to encourage others meeting up with someone for coffee or for lunch, being there to hear and celebrate good news. And so it continues. Friends, James is a practical book, but it shows that the practical outworking of putting our trust in Jesus will flow over into love for others. So let's pray that that's what we do and that's what we see. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the encouragement uh, to be shaped and changed by what we read. Um, we are sometimes overwhelmed by the needs that we see around us. And yet, you know that we sometimes ignore the simple opportunities to do good. So we pray that you'll help us to put our, our faith into action and that our trust in you will result in showing mercy and kindness and love and generosity, even at cost to ourselves, uh, for those around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.